The reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that's 1 to 13, and you find that on page 954. I think since our Bible sort, we've all got the same Bibles now, hopefully. Okay. So 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already proclaimed judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I write to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would not need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, uh, it is not those inside the church whom you are, you are to judge. God judges those outside. Purge the evil one from among you. Incest, sexual immorality, uh, sleeping with your father's wife. Today's subject might feel like it is not for you to hear. After all, you've never had any temptations to sleep with your father's wife. I hope so anyway. But let me assure you, today is for all of us to hear. And here's why. See, the question is not, how do I not fall into incest? But rather, how do we deal with persistent sin as a church? How do we deal with persistent sin as a church? Notice how few of our verses are actually about the sin itself. The first verse, and that's about it. And none of, none of this is directed at the man sleeping with his father's wife. This is a message for the church. This is a message for us. In part, that is because this particular situation is so clear-cut. Paul doesn't even debate the rights or wrongs of this particular sin. It is so clearly a sin, it doesn't, he doesn't need to argue for it. And the fact that this sin is a sexual sin is by the by. Clearly, Paul thinks other sins could promote the church to respond similarly. Just check out the list in verse 11. 
Maybe we should consider carefully then how to spot a persistent swindler or a greedy individual amongst us. So the question, how do we deal with persistent sin as a church? See, we've left the first four chapters of foundational theology, setting up that category of the world's way, which looks at God's way and thinks, how stupid, how foolish. And now we begin to see that logic being played out in scenarios. You know, the world might listen in on a sermon like today and think this is madness, unloving, unkind, etc., etc. But of course they would, wouldn't they? It's the world. We are of the spirit. Uh, Do you not know that we are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in us? So our first point, sin matters. Sin matters. Corinth was a culture that says, if it feels good, do it. Whatever turns you on, anything goes. Sound familiar? It's so worldly to be controlled by my own rationale, to think I know better than God's revelation, to follow my feelings at the expense of everything else. If it feels good, do it. Whatever makes you happy. That was the city of Corinth's culture. How very London 2022 it is. Yet the great outrage is not that the world does this, Of course it does, it's the world. Nothing new under the sun there. But the scandal is that this is what the church is saying. If the church says, if it feels good, do it, whatever turns you on, anything goes, well, that is when we have a real problem on our hands. The world has infiltrated the spiritual realm of Christ's body. And can you hear Paul's tone of bewilderment? Even the pagans thought that this sin was off limits. Just notice there in verse 1, actually reported, even among pagans. In other words, what are you playing at, Corinth? And to make matters worse, verse 2, verse 6, they're even arrogant and boasting about it. That word arrogant there is to be proud, inflated, and puffed up. What precisely they were proud of is tricky to pin down. Uh, Were they puffed up that their church was so inclusive? Uh, Were they proud that they'd left the old law behind and so now could be free from all the rules? Uh, Were they inflated that they'd hit freedom from fleshly physical restraint rather than dividing flesh, uh, perhaps dividing flesh from the spirit? There is certainly some old Greek thinking about a division between body and soul, which obviously the New Testament never, ever endorses. Whichever it is, though, plainly, Paul wants them to respond in exactly the opposite way to boasting. Verse 2, stop being so proud and boastful about this sin. Shouldn't you rather be in mourning? In mourning, they're publicly parading about this sin when they should have been at, well, the funeral. Uh, Black ties on, wailing and sobbing as they gather around their dead loved one. Sense the tone, Corinth. It's not time to party and be proud. Well, not in this scenario anyway. 
it's time for a funeral when this kind of thing happens. So what should the Corinthians do about this sin in the congregation? What does holding the funeral exactly look like? Paul is very explicit. Five times he commands them to separate. And each time he uses different verbs and images. End of verse 2, remove him from among you. Verse 5, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven. Verse 11, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother and is guilty of sin, not even to eat with one. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. The verbs are all so strong. Remove, deliver, cleanse, don't associate, purge. Paul wants them to be sorrowful. Mourn. You're at the funeral, Corinth. Then, if to separate, if repentance isn't found. Notice the long-established, repeated pattern of sin here. It's implicit in the logic. Paul, verse 3, had already pronounced judgment on the matter. It was very public. It was very much known about. It's very long-established. So now it is time to act. This is crucial when it comes to putting this into practice. Uh, we are all a big bunch of sinners. Um, that's why we confess um, every week when we come together. But if a Christian in our church family refuses to repent when living in persistent, unrepentant sin, well, that is to turn away from sin altogether, then there's only one thing that we can do then. Remove, deliver, cleanse, don't associate, purge. Notice also that this is for a church to act in together. Uh, and it's never individualistic. Verse 4, when you are assembled, there is nothing appropriate about individuals taking upon themselves to pronounce judgment on others in the body. Uh, that is very dangerous. It's unbiblical, and we must refrain from behaving like that. But notice why. Notice why. Why do we separate? The hope is always restoration. Verse 5, so that his spirit, the sinner's spirit that is, may be saved in the day of the Lord. This kind of separation isn't an unkind thing but the most loving act imaginable. The goal is always for the individual to come back to Jesus, even though sadly that goal isn't always reached. People might call us all sorts of names when acting like this, um, unloving, judgmental, arrogant, hypocritical, etc. And we should be really careful not to be any of those things, especially as we are um, performing this kind of separation. But we should be under no illusions. When somebody is in a repeated pattern of unrepentant sin, this sort of action is the most loving thing we can do for them. Let's just think about how verse five works. Verse five, we send the individual out into the world. 
out of the temple body where the spirit reigns and into the world where the Satan, the father of lies, reigns. And we allow them to experience life, life under the one who destroys the flesh. Uh, That experience, we pray, in time will drive them back into the body. It's the opposite of taste and see that the Lord is good. We're praying, if you like, they would taste and see how Satan is so evil. And you know what? It works. It works. Clearly not in every case, of course. But certainly it seems that in this particular case, it appears to have worked. In chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians, Paul refers back to a scenario which could well have been this man who comes back repentant, and was therefore restored. This works. See, taking sin seriously is really good for the individual in question. It shows them what living with Jesus as king actually looks like. It means that they won't be believing lies and acting out of step with the Spirit. This is so good, so good for the sinner in question. The destruction of the flesh is something we must care about as spirit-filled Christians. Sin really matters. So it's good for the sinner to separate from them. Verses 6 to 8, sin leavens. Paul turns and refocuses on the Corinthians' boasting, uh, their pride in this gross, evil sin. And he takes them into the world of baking, He says, learn from the bakers. Uh, Now, we need to forget the modern bakery of Kingsmill thickly sliced farmhouse loaves and modern yeast, which often just comes in sachets. Uh, The picture of this bakery is one of not the modern yeast, but of leaven, as Sarah so helpfully explained for us. Bakers back then would daily keep aside that little bit of raw dough, which contained yeast cultures, which would rapidly ferment. It gets added to the new batch of new raw dough every day, and that rapidly spreads the infection, and then it takes hold, and the whole new dough rises. In fact, each bakery would have had its own distinct smell and their own distinct taste with their unique leaven, all due to such old and cultured starters, or beasties, as they are sometimes called. But the point's obvious, isn't it? Bacteria spreads like a drop of food coloring in water. It's the perfectly chosen metaphor, not least, though, for its rich connection to the Passover. I don't know if you've ever been in a Jewish house during Passover time. Uh, There's always tons to eat. Uh, It's a good celebration. But there's absolutely nothing with leaven. Ever since the Jews were made a people by being saved from Egypt in Exodus some 3,000 years ago, they have remembered the haste with which they had to leave. Uh, No time for leavening a lump of dough. Indeed, I remember the Jewish household I stayed in celebrated, literally had a party as they cleared out all the leaven from the shelves in the kitchen. It's a big deal because sin leavens. Leaven spreads. And as the sin leavens, well, it's a simple point for us to remember, but it's one we must keep believing. 
Because living as a Christian is really hard, isn't it? It's really hard. Living the spirit-filled life makes us different from the world. Yet the moment it's okay for, say, somebody in amongst us, say, my fellow body member Esmeralda, to sleep with so-and-so outside of marriage, or for Bartholomew to uh, be greedy with all his cash, or for Drew to be reviling somebody consistently, well, then it's suddenly okay for all of us to do that, isn't it? It's a trait of humanity that we love to copy each other and follow others' leads. Sin leavens, though, and it leavens ever so quickly. Allow a foothold here and it'll take a stranglehold. I wonder when was the last time you thought about your own personal struggle with sin as having a profound impact on the person you're sat next to right now. But verse seven, for Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Christians, remember who we are. Remember who we are. The first Passover, each family slaughtered a perfect lamb and its blood on the doorpost meant the angel of death would literally pass over their family and spare them. The Passover gave Israel a distinct identity. And Jesus is the real Passover lamb. He's our Passover lamb. His death has won deliverance for us. We are therefore no longer part of this world. We belong to the next life. Compare our Passover lamb, Jesus, with the animals sacrificed in Egypt at that first, first Passover. How much greater is our responsibility to put away sin? The Lord Jesus gave his life for us not just so that our past sin might be forgiven, but to make us new creations in him. For that is who we now are. If Jesus took my sin seriously enough to die for it, shouldn't we too take it just as seriously? So verse eight, the Christian life is one of continuous Passover celebration. I wonder, is that how you generally view the Christian life? As a celebration? So it is actually time to be partying, to be proud and boastful all the time, only unleavened, meaning sin-free. That sort of party. It's that kind of party. See, we just can't just party with anybody. And that can be a really painful reality, actually. It's not easy, uh, but it is good for us. It's good for us. Did you spot the contrasted pairs at the end of verse eight? At the malice and evil versus sincerity and truth? We are to celebrate, to party, but with sincerity and truth rather than malice and evil. And that's so beautifully put, isn't it? Sincerity and truth, because we must be careful. Sincerity alone would be dangerous, wouldn't it? Hitler. He was sincere. He was very sincere about what he did, but it was definitely not in the truth. Pure motives founded on the truth revealed by God in his word. And just for a moment, let's just think about all the lies, 
All the lies that we believe about sin, the lies, lies like God doesn't really mind. It's only once. Who else is this really going to hurt? Sin's only natural, after all. It's how humans are supposed to behave. They're all lies. Every lie sown from the accuser, from the Satan. All such lies and sin must be leavened from among us. And can you hear the, the howls of anger from the world as we do this here? Intolerant, unloving, judgmental, they might cry. We must answer like this. Is the doctor unloving or judgmental when they tell you that the operation must happen immediately? Do you want a doctor who tolerates evil bacteria? Or are we to say that the issues of verse 11 are not like diseases? Do the issues of verse 11 build up? Or do they destroy? See, the truth is, this sort of church discipline is really good for the church. Imagine if we did tolerate sin. What would it be like to be here? What would the body be like? We would be like the world, only fraudulently dressed up as Christians. It would be the greatest lie ever. We'd say, come into Christ's body and, and have salvation, whilst actually living in the flesh and denying the lordship of Jesus. God would hate it. The consequences are far-reaching, so if we get this wrong, it will lead us into having Satan as our king and falling away entirely. Church family, I really hope we're listening very carefully this morning. Sincerity and truth. Sin matters. It's good for the sinner. Sin leavens. It's good for the body. Finally, apply carefully. Apply carefully. Having written on this subject in a previous letter, Paul has to turn to correct the Corinthians, verse 10. Not at all meaning. See, previously the Corinthians had arguably deliberately misunderstood Paul's intention not to associate with sexually immoral people. They'd interpreted that as separation from the whole world. But Paul doesn't want a Christian ghetto or a monastic community. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Besides, if you actually wanted to do that properly, then the end of verse 10, he says, you need to go out of this world. See the point. In other words, you can take the monk out of the world, but you can't take them, the world out of the monk. The Corinthians had become super spiritual. They wanted to take themselves out of the world, to only socialize with the insiders. Paul stops them, though, dead in their tracks. What Paul says is, this chapter applies only to the church body, not, as verse 10 puts it, to those of this world. Paul wants careful application. Never, ever judge the outsider. Why not? Well, because of the end of verse 10. Who are you to judge? God judges those outside the body. 
This chapter, therefore, applies only within the body. Only within the body. Those who bear the name brother. It's as if he's saying, the ship has to be in the sea. But what is crucial is that not to have the sea in the ship. So the issue then becomes, how then do you deal with the Christian in the hull of the ship who constantly opens a porthole underneath the ship which lets the water just gush in? And it's worth noticing just how many ways there are to open up that porthole and let the water in. Verse 11, greed, idolatry, reviling, drinking to excess, or swindling. Some of those categories I think we rarely consider and are potentially means for discipline or separation. That should cause us to think carefully. And here, Paul's instruction is in the most extreme of the chapter because he clarifies in the negative. Start of verse 11, don't associate. End of verse 11, don't even eat with such a one. To associate is to mix together, to entwine lives. It seems plain to me that exclusion from the meal was primarily intended to be from the communion table. However, does it go further than that? Meals then, as they are now, were social bonding, establishing deeper relationships, and essentially acceptability of fellowship. We're together as we eat together. We're, that's how we're united. It's an expression of that unity. I think we need to carefully consider what cultural expressions of closeness would be needed to be avoided. That may be very personal to each of us, but to my mind, all social contact would at least have to be approached very cautiously. Indeed, if this was something on which the whole congregation was agreed and which they acted upon together, it would effectively separate the unrepentant from their fellowship circles and therefore any meaningful involvement in the life of the church. The logical, essential from that Passover meal, purge the evil from among you. Now, the obvious question, the obvious question, is this loving? Undoubtedly so. We've been saying it all the way through. I hope you've heard that. This uncompromising view of unrepentant sin is a clear demonstration of an underlying love for God and a love for a neighbor. Doing this, then, would be wonderful and good for the world. An old Bible teacher who was a regular in the St. Helens pulpit wrote this. The greatest contribution that we can make to evangelism in our generation is to live lives of sincerity and truth that confirm and illustrate the reality of the message that we speak. This is good for the sinner. This is good for the body here. And it's really good for the world out there. 
So how do we do this here at St. Helens? Well, rarely, rarely. I think we tend to do this on average about once every two or three years. Um, Gradually, held in conjunction with Matthew 18, the other passage really helpful on church discipline. And by implication of the time period of the letter and previous correspondence, this is a long-term, unwaveringly unrepentant sin issue. So it must be done slowly, always looking for restoration. There's a great danger that some tentative amongst us uh, might feel that being honest and open about our sin might have us excommunicated in an instant. That is definitely not the case. Please keep being honest about your struggles with sin together. Uh, It's a last resort. Having prayed, reasoned, and pleaded with an individual and made plain the course of action that would be taken, this becomes an inevitable last resort. It's made known as sin, as, as public, um, as far as the sin is known about. So if it was William or myself who was in unrepentant sin, then you would all definitely know about it. But if it was someone that only a few of us knew, then it would stay on that kind of level, publicly speaking. Usually our practice is to stop attendance at small groups because that is one of our key expressions of fellowship. I wonder, has this ever happened to you yet? Have you ever looked at somebody's broken marriage and wished, I should have intervened. I wish I'd acted and said something sooner. Because sin matters. Sin leavens. But we must apply this very carefully. Allow me to end with a word of caution. Nobody within the body should ever imagine themselves to be void of sin. There is a great potential for being Pharisee-like and not like other men, as the Pharisee would say. Satan would love us to think like that. Sometimes this can manifest itself in a critical spirit, never allowing for human failings and seeking for ungodly witch hunts. I think that could ruin the church more than the original targeted sin. Sometimes it can manifest itself in a worldly, dictatorial attitude. Nobody is ever quite good enough. And discipline is exercised far too frequently and far too quickly. No, the godly leader with a godly congregation is a humble and obedient sheep leading other um, humble and obedient sheep. Of course, occasionally, discipline is required. We must be under no illusion. But only after careful, considered, grace-filled prayer. Sin matters. Sin leavens. But apply carefully. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you tell us hard things. 
that you tell us hard things which are really good for us. Help us hear what you have to say to us this morning carefully. Help us not misapply. But Father, we do pray that you would help us consider our sin rightly. Help us see just how much it matters. Help us see just how quickly it can leaven. And help us never judge the outside world. Help us as a body be really united in this. And help us, Father, we pray, not be like the world. Help us not be dressed up fraudulently as the world, but to be your spirit-filled, unique body. We pray that for your glory alone. Amen.